Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Once upon a battle, an infantry soldier came under heavy fire. Bullets were zipping through the air, hot metal flying over his head as he dove into a foxhole. Well, under normal circumstances, this GI rarely thought about his faith. Yet in the heat of the battle, staring death in the face, he pulled out the cross that he wore around his neck. He was desperate for any help that he could get. Suddenly, another GI dove into the foxhole. When he rolled over, the previous soldier noticed that this was an army chaplain. What a relief. He held up his cross, and he said to the chaplain, Wow, am I glad to see you. Can you tell me how to get this thing to work? That's a really good question. How does the cross work in our lives today? How does the victory that Jesus won 2,000 years ago translate into victory in our lives today? That's the question I want to answer over the next three weeks. On a practical level, how does Christianity work? How does the cross work? How does cross work affect changes in my life today? Before we dive into the text, I want to give you a little autobiographical insight as to why Romans chapter 6 is so important to me personally. The first time I taught through the book of Romans was in the early 1980s. I was a new pastor and a relatively new Christian. I longed for victory in my own life and a sustainable joy. I had been raised in church and had tired of going through the motions with no power. I desired a faith that worked. It turns out this chapter was the medicine that I needed. What I discovered here in Romans chapter 6 were truths that I had never been taught, even though I'd gone to church my whole life. In fact, some of what I learned in this chapter contradicted the assumptions that I had carried earlier. For a time, I was torn between what I had been told by preachers and what the Bible actually taught. About the same time I was studying Romans, one day my wife was browsing through the Christian bookstore and she found a volume that she thought I would enjoy. The book was titled Birthright by David Needham, a professor at Multnomah Bible College. I read the book and I couldn't believe that someone else had drawn some of the same conclusions from Romans 6 that I had. His insights provided me some needed clarity. Later, I read another book entitled The New Man. It was by the famous British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones. It further confirmed my new understanding. And once my confusion had been dispelled, I embraced the truth of Romans 6 wholeheartedly. My life has never been the same. 
My outlook was transformed by the cross of Jesus and by the Word of God. And for the last 35 years, the truths of Romans 6 have sustained me. What this chapter teaches has become an anchor in my life. Romans 6 explains how Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection works out in us and transforms us for victory. I hope you know the cross is the crux of Christianity. In fact, our words crux and crucial and crucible all come from the word crucifixion. The key to overcoming Christianity is the cross of Jesus and its impact. I want us to start by asking you, are there habits in your life that you can't break? Are you mired down in sin? Do you live somewhere between discouragement and desperation? Do you long to overcome sin and fear and guilt and bitterness and despair? Do you desire a consistent victory and an unquenchable joy? Well, the simple answers are found in Romans chapter 6. But I'll tell you up front, like me, you'll need to believe the truth and deal with your false assumptions. Well, let's begin here in verse 1. The author of Romans, the Apostle Paul, he asks, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he answers his own question, certainly not. That's a bold, emphatic response. Listen to Paul in a few other translations. The New American Standard renders it. May it never be. The Revised Standard Version. By no means. The old King James put it. God forbid. The New International Bible. No, no. The Phillips Translation. I like this one. What a ghastly thought. And the yet-to-be-issued Adam's paraphrase, no way, Jose. I mean, the message is clear. What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. There is no excuse for a Christian to continue in a habitual, unbridled life of sin. At the close of chapter 5, Paul makes a wonderful statement. He says, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. In other words, if sin is a mountain and grace is an ocean, then all sin is below sea level. There is no sin that grace can't smother. There is no sinner that grace can't cover. God's grace, that is his favor, his forgiveness, is sufficient to cleanse all the sin of all the people over all the ages. There is no limit to God's amazing grace. But Sandy, I spit at my daddy. And I slapped my mama. I cussed out the cops. I took God's name in vain. I kicked my neighbor in the shins. I lied and cheated and fornicated and smoked dope, and that was just on Friday. I won't even tell you what I did on Saturday. I'm an out-of-control sinner, and I've always assumed there's no hope for me. But that's not true. The Bible says that when sinners get bold and sin abounds, grace doesn't shy away. Grace rises to the challenge. God's grace refuses to be eclipsed by our sin. There's not one despicable act that you've done that Jesus won't forgive. If you ask him, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. 
Yet Paul is concerned that someone could twist that statement to say what it was never meant to say. Someone could conclude, well, if grace, if God's grace rises to the height of our sin, then why not elevate our sinning to prompt more grace? Here's the twisted logic. Since the more grace God shows, the more glory he gets, then we do God a favor by giving him a reason to forgive us. In other words, we give, do God a favor when we sin. There was an influential Russian monk who actually taught such a heretical notion. Gregory Rasputin lived in the early 20th century. People used to call him the mad monk for obvious reasons. He once wrote this, If you are simply an ordinary sinner, you're not giving God an opportunity to show his glory. So you need to be an extraordinary sinner. Really? Rasputin was a drunkard. He was a womanizer. He was a disgrace to God's grace. His logic is like the teenager saying, Oh, I'll keep a messy room so all my friends will see that my mom is a great housekeeper. Ask one of my kids if they're willing to try that on their mom. And I'll bet their reply is the same as Paul. Certainly not. Are you out of your mind? I'd like to live a long life. A good mom loves her teenagers unconditionally. Her forgiveness is limitless, but she won't let her child abuse her love and take advantage of her grace. A good mom is no fool, and neither is God. Now, I know few Christians with Rasputin's audacity but I know many who follow his logic. They downplay the need to live a holy life. Oh, it's no big deal. Have you ever thought, why worry about sin when God is so loving and forgiving? Well, that's akin to Rasputin's logic. Here's why sin and purity matter. Grace doesn't just forgive us. It changes us. It makes us better people. If you've truly tasted God's grace, you'll become like Jesus. Not overnight necessarily, but certainly over time. And at the end of the day, if there's no change in your life, then you have to seriously question if you've ever received God's grace in a saving way. See, here's today's big idea. When a person really encounters the salvation Jesus brings, something happens in that person that is so colossal that he or she doesn't remain the same. A change occurs. At the person's core, they're transformed into something different, something new. The idea of a Christian just cruising through life in blatant, habitual sin without ever being bothered by it or troubled by it just isn't possible. C.H. Spurgeon once put it, the grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. Grace is not just judicial, it's effectual. God doesn't just clean my slate in heaven, but he changes the state of my heart on earth. Several years ago, there was a bumper sticker contained a Christian slogan. It adorned the bumpers of believing drivers. It read, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Well, the message conveyed a nice sentiment. We as Christians, we don't want to be seen as some kind of holier-than-thou hypocrite who looks down their nose at at unbelievers. None of us are Captain Perfect. The slogan had a good intention, but biblically, it's inaccurate. For the statement implies 
The only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that the Christian is forgiven and the non-Christian is not. Other than their status before God, they're essentially the same. But that's not true, not by a long shot. For Jesus not only delivers us from the penalty of sin, he has also delivered us from the power of sin. Jesus changes us radically and dramatically. In essence, when we give our lives to Jesus, we don't just get a new paint job, friends. God installs in us a new engine. He works in us and on us, not just for us. And in the rest of the chapter, Paul pops the hood on our lives and he unveils the workings of his glorious salvation. Verse 2 explains why a Christian won't continue in consistent, repetitive sin, Paul tells us. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Did you hear what Paul said about you? All Christians have died to sin. In fact, in our passage, Paul refers to death quite a bit. And surprisingly, he speaks of it in a positive light. In fact, the next few verses mention that in Christ, we've been baptized into his death. We've been buried with him and united together in the likeness of his death. That sounds strange to us. Hey, often when we speak of death, it's it's not a positive thing. It's always a negative thing. Usually it's something we try to avoid. But here Paul speaks of it positively. Reminds me of the French Revolution. Three men were sentenced to the guillotine. A pastor, a lawyer, and an engineer were scheduled to be beheaded. Well, the pastor was first to meet his executioner. Before he was placed in the guillotine, he was asked if he preferred to die facing up or facing down. Well, the pastor said, I want to be facing up. I want to be looking to God when I die. Well, he was placed in the guillotine. The henchman pulled the lever. The blade flew downward, but it jammed just inches from the pastor's throat. The executioner took it as a sign from God and set the pastor free. Well, next the lawyer was asked what he wanted to be executed, face up or face down. Well, the lawyer, hoping for the same plight as the pastor, he asked for face up. Well, again, the executioner pulled the level lever and the blade came screeching downward only to jam just inches from the lawyer's throat. Well, this was also interpreted as a sign from God. Once again, the lawyer was set free. Finally, the engineer was led to the guillotine. He was asked if he wanted to be executed face up or face down. He also chose to die face up, looking at the guillotine. But just as the lever was about to be pulled, the engineer pointed, and then he shouted, Wait, I think I see your problem. (laughs) That's all. Hey, death is a negative experience for most people, just not engineers and Christians. Here Paul is acting as a spiritual engineer as he describes what happens when we come to Jesus and we die. We die to sin. We're buried with him. We're united in the likeness of his death and these are all good things. In verse 2, Paul starts with dead to sin. This is really good, for as Paul puts it, since you're dead to sin, how can you live any longer in it? When you become a Christian, sin should lose its stranglehold on your life. 
When a Christian dies to sin, it puts an end to sin's governing influence in that person's life. Oh, sure, we're human. And a Christian might stumble into sin from time to time. But sin is no longer the driving ambition in that person's life. Sin is no longer calling the shots and setting the pace. We're dead to sin. And in the next few verses, Paul explains more clearly how the Christian dies to sin by dying with Christ. Verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now let's try to understand this. In this section, Paul uses two terms to describe the change that happens to us as Christians. One phrase is a theological phrase. The other is a biological term. The theological term is baptized. We are baptized into Christ. In the Bible, the word baptism has two different meanings. At times it means to dip or to immerse. In antiquity, whenever a garment was dipped into the dye, it was said to be baptized. This is how we use the term when we hold a water baptism. We dip new believers down into the water. This is also how it's used when a person is baptized by the Holy Spirit. They're immersed into the Spirit's power. But there's another way to define baptism. It can mean to initiate or to join. When a rookie quarterback plays his first game in the NFL and he's crunched by bigger, faster, smarter players, we say he got his baptism. It's his initiation into a new football environment. And when we're saved by grace, we too are initiated into a new spiritual environment. We are now in Christ. This is the meaning here. We've been joined to Christ. We now have access to a new environment in Christ. Notice also the biological term that Paul uses to explain our relationship with Jesus. Verse 5 tells us that we've been united together in the likeness of his death and resurrection. United together means grafted into his work. When a twig is spliced into the trunk of another plant, and the two begin to grow as one, we call it a graft. And you've been grafted into Jesus' death and resurrection. What he accomplished there is living now in you. A Christian is spliced into Christ. We can now draw from Jesus. We share in all that he is and in all that he's done. Author Beth Moore tells the story of an interview she saw one night on television Two teenagers, they were best friends, they got drunk, and they decided to drive home. Well, they were involved in a terrible accident. The driver survived, but the passenger died. Now, here's the survivor with the victim's parents on television. The parents have forgiven their son's killer. Even more, they have taken him into their home, and they've made him part of their family. He now sleeps in their deceased son's bed. He now sits in the chair he used to sit in at the table. And when Beth saw this, 
She was bewildered. How, how can these parents do such a thing? She had a difficult time relating to the mother. That's when the Holy Spirit whispered to her, Beth, you can't relate because you put yourself in the wrong position. You, my child, are the driver. It hit her. The way these parents were treating their son's killer is the way God has chosen to treat us. For like the boy in the story, our sin was the reason God's only son died. And yet he now treats us the way he treats Jesus. We share in all that Jesus has acquired and accomplished. This is what it means to be in Christ. God sees us being and growing in Christ. This means when Jesus died on the cross to put an end to sin, we died with him. He put an end to sin in us. And when he rose from the dead, we rose with him. We resurrected to walk in his newness of life. You remember in the old Wild West days, the bad guys were wanted dead or alive? Today, Christians are wanted dead and alive. We're dead to sin and alive to God. Spiritually, we share in Jesus' death and resurrection. The Christian philosopher Blaise Pascal once wrote, One of the greatest principles of Christianity is that what happened in Jesus happens in the soul of the Christian. It's strange to think that we can share in an event that occurred 2,000 years before we were born and in a place we may have never been, yet it's true. As surely as the nails were driven into Jesus' hands, you died with him. As surely as he walked out of that tomb, you live with him. Theologian Frank Gablin once put it, our spiritual history began at the cross. When the prophet Elijah raised the Shunammite son from the dead, we're told how he performed the miracle. In 2 Kings chapter 4, we're told, and he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself out on the child. And how weird is that? Elisha interfaces with the child. And the virtue in him was transferred to the boy's corpse. And he became alive. The life flowed through the connection. And likewise, when Jesus was nailed to the cross in a mysterious spiritual way, your old sin nature was nailed there with him. On the cross, you were laid out on Jesus. You interfaced with Jesus and his work for you. And this is how when Jesus died, you also died to sin. What Jesus did for all mankind, he also did in you. Now, I know these concepts are foreign to our thinking and our logic, but here's where we need to really believe. The whole way of capturing this and tying ourselves into this is to believe. Understand, just because something's spiritual doesn't mean it's not real. God, the Holy Spirit, the angels, heaven, the devil, they're all spiritual realities, but most of us would agree they're very, very relevant. They're real for sure. Just because something is spiritual doesn't mean it's not actual. And just because God works through a spiritual process doesn't diminish the impact his work will have in the physical world. It's the cross that actually changes us. 
Here's another way to stretch your mind and grasp what Paul's saying. In the production of a movie, scenes are shot first with just the actors. The film has no special effects. It has no musical score. Only later, the effects and the score are transposed on top of the original recording. Well, in God's plan of salvation, the original recording was Jesus' death on the cross. But when you came to Jesus, your spirit, the deepest part of you, was dubbed in over his crucifixion. The life that you had lived at odds with God died with Jesus. Now when God rewinds the footage, there you are, crucified with Christ. Paul tells us in verse 6, knowing this, you need to know this, that our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with. Notice Paul states, knowing this. There's some things we need to know. I'm sure you've heard the old expression, what you don't know won't hurt you. I hope you realize that's not true. Don't tell it to the guy in Bristol, England I read about who dove 25 feet head first off a pier into the ocean. He didn't know it was low tide and the water level was 18 inches. What he didn't know had a profound impact on him. The same is true for a Christian who fails to grasp that spiritually he's both dead and alive. Ignorance of this truth will keep you from the victory that you seek. Paul says, we need to know that our old man was crucified with Christ. Once a little boy came home from Sunday school, he said he had learned that morning that Paul's father was one of the thieves on the cross. Well, his mother was puzzled. She sort of scratched her head. Where did the child get such a wild idea? That's when the little boy quoted Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 6. My old man was crucified with Christ. I thought that was funny. Of course, that's not what Paul meant. But it's close. For Paul's father had a father. Who had a father, who had a father, who had a father. All the way back to Adam. And what did Adam do? Adam sinned. But it was a colossal sin. Adam bombed. It was the original Adam bomb. And worse, the Bible says that the sin of Adam passed down to all of Adam's descendants. The fallout is now felt by every human being who has ever lived. We're all born with Adam's sinful nature. This is what Paul calls the old man. It's who we were before we came to Jesus. It's the you that was governed by sin. It was the inborn inclination in you to sin and rebel. The natural tendency to be selfish and to be proud and to be stubborn. But when you and I came to faith in Jesus, that old man was crucified. Crucified with Jesus and we died with sin. You need to believe that. You need to know that. Perhaps this will help you understand. Throughout the book of Romans, Paul sees humans divided into two partitions. Theologians call us a dichotomy. Each of us is made up of an inner person and an outer person. The inner you is the part of you that's going to live forever, while the outer you is the part of you that returns to the dust. The outer man is also called the flesh. This is you apart from God, left to your own devices. But the inner man is spiritual. 
It's the deepest part of who we are. It's the real you. It's the you that is connected with God. When I die, it's going to, the pastor's going to officiate the thing and he's going to look down at my corpse down in the casket, probably right down there. And he's going to say, this isn't the real Sandy Adams. This is just the shell. The nut is gone. <laughs> the outer me is not the real me. It's the inner me that's the real person. And when you come to Jesus, the changes that we're talking about occur in the inner man. The outer man remains the same. Thus, the day after I gave my life to Jesus, I looked the same. I talked the same. I smelled the same. I was just as ugly and corny as I was the day before. But inwardly, in my spirit, when I came to Christ, I became a new creation. A radical change took place in the depths of who I truly am. Through Jesus, I died to sin, and so did you if you came to Jesus. The old Sandy was crucified. My sin nature was eradicated, and I received a new nature. Now my inclinations towards sin and selfishness have been replaced with a love for God and with a love for others. Rather than me trying to change myself, in Christ, God's Spirit worked His changes in me. Notice the wording Paul uses. The old man was crucified. It's, it's not up to us to crucify ourselves or to try to crucify the old man ourselves. When a person was subjected to Roman crucifixion, it was never a suicide. Nobody could crucify themselves. It was physically impossible. It would take someone else to drive the nails and to inflict the wounds. And yet I've heard Bible teachers say that we need to crucify the old man by denying ourselves and our desires, by saying no to sin, by disciplining our bodies. We can master our passions. I don't think so. No amount of my own physical discipline can change what I am spiritually. I can make cosmetic changes. I can lose some weight. I can get a facelift. I can get a new tooth. But I can't change who I truly am, who I am spiritually. Realize at the heart of our problem is the problem in our heart. Take a little pig off the farm. Clean the little guy up. Wipe the mud off of him. Dress him up in pants and shirt and little boy's shoes. Now take him home and try to treat him like a child. But understand, the first time he gets near a mud puddle, he's going to dive right back in. Because a pig is still a pig, no matter how you clean him up. You can dress him up on the outside all you want, but you can't change what he is on the inside. You can make him look like a child, but he's a pig at heart. And this is the problem with us humans. Apart from God's help, we can't change what we are. And that's sinners at heart. We can dress ourselves up in religious garb. And we can learn to speak religious phrases. And we can develop religious traditions. And we can go to religious places. We can clean ourselves up on the outside. But deep inside, we're still sinners waiting on the opportunity to sin and act selfishly. Until something gets done about our nature, there is no hope for us. Only God has the answer to this problem, and it is the cross of Jesus Christ. 
God's solution for the old man isn't reform. You don't spruce up or clean up the sin nature. So what if all you do is sober up an alcoholic and he goes to hell sober? What good have you done? What have you accomplished if you don't change the man's nature? This is why behavior modification is not enough. It's not a 12-step approach we need. It's a one-step. The old man has to be crucified, and we can't crucify ourselves. That's why we are crucified with Christ. And our death to sin activates when we believe. See, the answer to our sin nature and its control over us is not to trust in ourselves or in our own efforts, but it's to trust that our sin has been dealt with through the power of Jesus' cross. Realize, when you came to Jesus, He didn't just add to your life. His love, His peace, His joy. You died to sin. The sin nature was subtracted from you. Next week, we're going to tackle... The inevitable question as we think about all this, I'm sure you've already thought it yourself. Okay, Sandy, if I died to sin at my conversion, then why do I still sin today? And why do I still feel the pull of sin? And we're going to answer those questions next week. But for now, here's what you need to believe. And as I said at the beginning of this morning, the key is to really believe. You need to know the truth that by the work of Jesus on the cross, you have been transformed on the deepest level. You need to believe that. You're a new creation. The work was finished by Jesus. And the victory is yours, not by trying to reform yourself, but by trusting that you've been crucified with Christ. Two old country boys, they were playing with a turtle that they saw crossing the road. One old boy pulled out his pocket knife and he chopped off the turtle's head. Hope we don't have any turtle lovers here this morning. He chopped off the turtle's head, and yet the body of the turtle kept walking across the blacktop. Well, it caused an argument. The first fellow said, that turtle's dead. He just doesn't know it. I'm sorry, that's not what he said. He said, that turtle is dead. It doesn't have a head. Okay, got it? The other guy replied, how can a turtle be dead when it's walking? That's when up walked old Bubba. Had no teeth in his mouth. (laughs) They asked Bubba to settle the dispute. Bubba, Bubba, is that turtle dead or not? Little Bubba, he pondered for a few seconds, then he answered. He said, boys, it seems like to me the turtle's dead. He just don't know it yet. Now, there are two conclusions we can draw this morning. First, if you've been struggling with sin in your life, if you're mired down in wicked habits and pride and selfish behavior, and nothing substantial has changed in your life since you professed faith in Jesus, then here is a very real possibility. You might not be saved. You might not be. Remember verse 2? How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Don't overlook the obvious, friend. 
If a life is completely powerless over sin and its pull, you might not be dead to sin and alive to God. You might need to seriously repent and truly believe today. But old Bubba points out another possibility. It is possible to be in Christ, to be dead to sin and alive to God, yet not know or fully believe this wonderful truth. Doubt or ignorance can rob us of our victory. That's why we need to be confident that in Christ we are dead and alive. Again, verse 6 declares, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Christ. Do you believe that simple yet powerful truth? Do you really believe it? It's time for us to stop trying to crucify the old man on our own and trust in the finished work of our Lord Jesus. Be dead to sin and alive to God, dead and alive. The answer for us all is to come to Jesus and believe.